Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food. Food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. How are you doing there? Welcome to the David McWilliams podcast, the podcast that hopes to make economics accessible and understandable, comprehensible, and where there are issues that are far too complex to try and make it a little bit more simple. So I hope you enjoy it. I'm joined always by John Davis, my old mate. Hey, how's it going? By Finn McLaughlin over in London. What's the crack, lads? How are you? Life is all good, Finn. And today we're going to return to, but take a different angle in the notion of the global economic cycle. Where are we at? The global property cycle and why these significant economic cycles tend to end in two ways, either in inflation or in deflation. And both of these outcomes have a significant impact on property, stocks, bonds, and financial markets in general. So that's what we're going to talk about, Johnny Boy. Great stuff. Before we begin, I want to just mention that this episode is brought to you thanks to our Patreon supporters. And to help support the content, and perhaps more importantly, to unlock exclusive comment and scenes and footage and episodes, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. So, Mark, what's your week been like? You've been mad busy with Talking Book Festival. I am mad busy with the book festival. John, I've been... We have a hundred speakers coming in yeah. from over thirty countries, talking about an extraordinary amount of fascinating. It's growing every year. Look, the very first year we sold eight hundred tickets, mm. and this year there's eighteen thousand tickets on sale. Amazing, and it always sells out. So the thing has gone from strength to strength, and then of course you have to make sure every year you invite. Better people, more interesting people, people with different angles. But like you've had the likes of Malcolm Gladwell and Well, Gladwell, I'll tell you how we got Gladwell. This is this is quite funny. So Gladwell I've been a fan of for years and years mm. and years. And about seven or eight years ago, uh, he did an event in Ireland and I was asked to sit beside him because Gladwell is known to sometimes clam up and not speak and be quite difficult. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't find him like that at all. I thought it was yeah. very interesting. So we're chatting away. And uh, the first thing is I'd worked illegally as a dishwasher in Toronto mm. in the mid-1980s in a place called Ontario Place, which is well known to Canadians. Yeah. And of course, Glad was a Canadian. I also drank in a place called the Brunswick Arms, which was a well-known student pub 
around uh, University of Toronto. We were chatting about that, about Gladwell and I. So kind of a breaking the ice. Loosen him up a bit. Yeah, and he was he was very interested that a Paddy would have been knocking around Toronto in the mid-80s, which was his vintage. But then he told me something really interesting, John. He said, no, he said, the first thing he said to me was, he said, Phoenix Park in Dublin. He said, yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful park to run in. Right. I said, oh, really, is it? I said, do you run? Uh, it's a bit like, do you come here often? <laughs> no, I use Tinder, you know. But anyway, I, he said, I do run, yeah. And then he said, it was quite nice. He said, I was actually the under-15s middle distance Ontario champion oh, runner. Right. So yeah. he was chatting about, and he says, and my <laughs> heroes, this is you like, he said, my heroes were Irish middle distance runners in the 1980s. So he's, Eamon Conklin and John, John Tracy. Tracy. So yeah. he, these were his heroes. So I clocked that and I thought, hmm, this is interesting. And he said, I love the way they ran. I love the way they ran indoors. I love the way they held themselves. And I, I always thought this was quite, you know, fascinating that Malcolm Gladwell, the brainiest, best-selling psychologist, anthropologist, historian, whatever you want to yeah. call him, has this teenage fascination with Ireland through these guys. So then I decided, wouldn't it be great to get Malcolm Gladwell to Ireland? But I know that he costs gazillions. You know, he can charge out a huge amount, which yeah. we don't have. But then I thought, maybe if I ring John Tracy and Eamon Coughlin and ask them to run with him in the Phoenix Park. Right, And get Brilliant. back onto him and say, Malcolm, would you like your childhood dream to be realised in Ireland? In she will fix life? it in, a, in <laughs> and, another guy. And so, so I rang, I knew somebody who worked with John Tracy. And, and John got back through this mate of mine. I said, yeah, no problem. I, I still run. I'll, I'll run with them, no problem. Wow, brilliant. And I asked Eamon and again got a message to him. And they said, yeah, whatever. God, that's really good of them, isn't it? So they said, well, look, we, we're still running. We're not running the way we used to do. Mm. But we're happy to run. So I went back to Gladwell and I said, listen, uh, Malcolm, would you like to come to Ireland? He's like, no, I'm so busy. You know, I've got this book and that book. And the last thing he wanted is to get in a plane from New York to come to the Dorky Book Festival. I said, look, okay, well, what if you run in the Phoenix Park with your two mates. And he said, do you mean John Tracy and Eamon Cochran? And I said, sure, done. Jim will fix it, all done. <laughs> <laughs> and um, how did that go then? He was great. And then what happened is he did his knee in. Gladwell did his ah, knee in Jesus, about six weeks yeah. before it. And he hadn't, he couldn't, he couldn't run, but he had committed to come anyway. Yeah. And and he was wonderful. Did he meet them though? He didn't, he didn't, but he oh, was wonderful. True. He was, he was great. And, and again, Gladwell is a really interesting. And then of course, it's like anything. Once you... Once you get a big name, it's like, did you ever hear the way, the way I think it was Geldof did Live Aid? You know, he kind of bullshitted to Mick Jagger yeah. that he had Paul McCartney and vice versa. Yeah. So but once you get a big name, then that gives other people the permission to say yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and this year we have writers from Trinidad. We've got writers from Korea, writers from France, from Lebanon, from Israel, from Russia, from Germany, Afghanistan. It's really, you know... But it's, it's not all books. No, the idea, John, was the interested mind is interested in good literature, economics, politics, ideas, design, history, education, in the ether, music. It's the interested mind that is turned on by great conversations, yeah. great individual performances, and the communal experience that going to a big event is. Yeah. It has me up all night now reading because I'm doing a lot of the interviews, but it's all good. It's, it's, it's better than, a, really it's better than a real job, man. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been reading your article, Mac, about the international property cycle and the fallout, etc. And you start off in ancient Greece. 
Well, Come on. Where, give us John, some more on John, this. You always knew that my uh, pretentiousness knows no fucking bounds. Indeed. No, but um, it all comes from, I'm reading, I told you, I'm interviewing uh, Stephen Fry. Yeah. And Stephen Fry's latest two books are on Greek mythology, which I knew almost nothing about until last week. And I am now an expert. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I am now the world's leading expert on Greek <laughs> mythology. But I, you know, we always knew bits and pieces. So I'm, I'm reading and I'm listening to a wonderful audio book. And I was also, for my real job, I was reading the IMF and the OECD reports about global property and particularly the Irish property market. Riveting stuff. Ah, Jesus, absolutely riveting. It would like, it's, like, it's, like, it's like watching paint dry. <laughs> dreadful shit. But it's essential for Nerdistan that I'm in, you know, yeah. to do economics. <laughs> so I was reading, but I, what struck me was that the link to ancient Greece is when, when Zeus found out that basically Zeus's son was Apollo. Yeah. But Zeus was partial to getting his leg over all over the gut because he was the king of the gods. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And his wife was a mod called Hera. And Hera was got, got very, very fed up at Zeus's all infidelities. Bring the fact he was having kids all over the place. Yeah. And one of those kids was Apollo, me. the god Apollo, that Zeus had with this daughter of one of the titans, Leto. Yeah. Okay? So Hera was really, really upset. And she sent a python, a snake, to go and kill Apollo and his twin sister, Aphrodite. Yeah. So that's the background noise. And Zeus put wind out to Apollo that this was going to happen. And Apollo got himself a bow and arrow. And when the python came up onto the island that they were hanging out on, Apollo killed the python. And this sent Hera, yeah. the wife of Zeus, the much cuckolded wife of Zeus, mental. So Zeus said... Jesus, man, I've got to do something here. I've got to punish the young fella, right? It's like me and my young, my yeah. kid. Got to punish the, the young fella. Naughty step. So I'm going to send him. I'm going to send him to where the Python was from, which is a place called Pythos, right? Okay. Which was in the center of Greece. And when Apollo went there, he went there for eight years. And when he was hanging out there for eight years, he did lots of interesting things because Apollo was this extraordinary god. He was very, very handsome, very blonde, which is unusual for the Greeks. But he also had this He's weird... Macedonian thing. then. He was, well, don't tell the Greeks that. <laughs> they, 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 nearly, they nearly went to war with Macedonia. I know, I know. Yeah. Tried. But he, he had North Macedonian in, in the Eurovision. Yeah, it's just changed. It's changed. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, I know, I know. But he said he couldn't lie. That was one of his dilemmas. So when he was in Pythos, he changed the name of Pythos to Delphi. Right. Which they believe comes from Delphius in Greeks, which is the name for womb. Because the Greeks thought that Delphi was the center of the world. It was basically the womb of the world. Okay. And in Delphi, he established an oracle. And this oracle was manned by a high priestess. And if you, as a layman, thought, do you know what? I want to know my future. You rocked up to the high priestess, gave him a few fucking sacrifices to the gods. And the high priestess said, listen, John Davis wants to know what's going on next year in his future. And uh, he's got his... His head is melted with the present. He wants to know what's going on tomorrow. Sure is. And, and, the, and the, the Sibyl, who was the high priestess of the oracle, would roar down into a chasm, which they thought was the womb of the earth. And then up from the chasm would come a riddle. And then the high priestess would tell you what the riddle was, okay? And the riddle was to tell you your future. But the problem with the riddle, it was condemned to be ambiguous. 
So it didn't tell you yes She or never no. explained it. She just it was all that it. this yeah. might possibly happen if, mm. after, right? And I thought when I was reading the IMF report, it was exactly like the bloody <laughs> article, right? Because I got to the end and said, well, okay, what the fuck's going to happen? Is it going up or down, up or down? And, and I thought, you know what, man? We haven't changed very much since the riddle Brilliant. of the Oracle of Delphi. So that's what was going on in my head. But, John. So go on, tell us more then. The report was about what is going to happen to the Irish commercial and residential property market. And to give you a sense of how it ended, it kind of says, well, the property market is hot, but maybe not too hot, but it might get a little bit hotter. But it's not going to crash this year, but it might crash next year. And you never know, but you wouldn't be worth. So it was so ambiguous as to leave the... It's being useless. It's useless. And my problem is, and I used to write these reports in the central bank years ago as a young fella, that... There is a kind of shows your Mickey at the end of it. Okay, you know what yeah. I mean? what's what's the thing? And there's nothing there. So I think that a lot of people are worried now, not just here in Ireland, but all over the world, about financial markets, where we are in the cycle, and how will it all end? Because if you think about the economic cycle, John, it started about ten years ago. This bull market that we talk about is in its 10th year. Right, right, so this is directly after the, the crash of 2008. Exactly. So that reset the the It reset the, the whole the scales. So what's actually in this report? I mean, could you actually decipher okay. it? Okay, <laughs> no, these are two reports, right? The OECD and the IMF, the okay. two most significant economic think tanks in the world, wrote about Ireland and international property markets. And do you know what I'll do? is I'll ask Finn. Finn, how are you doing? Finn, tell us, what's the meat and veg in these two reports this week? Yeah, sure thing. So, I mean, just to be specific here, I'll talk more about the IMF one because it's a bit more interesting. Um, so what we're talking about is their latest global financial stability report, which they publish twice a year. And I guess the two, the two main points of interest that I took from that are, first, so looking at property markets, they document this increased synchronicity of housing markets across national borders. So in other words, they've noticed this growing tendency for residential property prices to move in the same direction at the same time, uh, both amongst countries and cities. Now, this, of course, raises concerns of the prospect of, you know, large coordinated declines, as they put it. So, you know, basically, if the factors that are causing housing markets across national borders to rise together, surely these factors or their inverse could cause them to fall together. So, Finn, Finn, if I can stop you there. So what does that mean? Does it mean that like property markets in New York and Dublin are moving almost in the same direction at the same time? Exactly, yeah. So basically you can learn about the Dublin property market by watching property prices in other major cities around the world oh. because there's this general tendency for them to increase together is what the report is saying. And they chalk that up to a couple of factors. So... They say, again, sustained low interest rates globally over the past 10 years since the crisis. They say growing presence of institutional investors. So we've talked about this before. So private equity funds, rates in major cities around the world. And they also then just point to the coordinated upswing in the real economy across the world as well. Okay, so John, take those ideas, right? Yeah. What Finn is saying there is that the world is interlinked in a way in which it never was. Right. That looking at economics from the perspective of country A and country B doesn't actually tell you that much because globalization and the fact that global interest rates have all fallen has meant that humans all around the world in every country are acting in a broadly similar way 
And what you're seeing is people in a country as disparate as Israel, Ireland, Hong Kong, and let's say a city like Dallas-Fort Worth in Texas are actually behaving the same way. And is that because of the local population or the investors that are now kind of global? Good question. Now, what it is because of, take the local population out of it. It's actually to do with global investing. And then you've got to say, well, what is driving global investors to see the world in the same way? Yeah. What it is is global interest rates. And then that brings you back to the idea that interest rates have been low and significantly low across many, many countries since 2008. Now, if you look, and years ago I worked in the financial markets in London, interest rates do very strange things. Basically, in periods of low interest rates, investors go for what I would say hope over income, which basically means they go for long term, hoping to hit the jackpot yeah. ideas, then short term companies that generate income. So they value the tomorrow over the here and now. They value what's called the long end in economics over the short end. And in a sense, what they do, because the price of borrowing is so low, it emboldens people to gamble on the future. So consequently, you see incredibly risky assets being financed and non-risky assets getting no return. And the best way to think about this is a non-risky asset is like my mother's deposits in Bank of Ireland, right? Mm. My mother would have thought, okay, if I put my money in the bank, I'll get 2 or 3% interest rate or maybe 4 or 5% every year. And that'll be- Nice a, and steady. That'll be a stream of income for me. So my mother in a period of high interest rates is rewarded for deposits. Yeah. In low interest rates, my mother gets zero. So she's been punished, actually. Yeah. Her type of behavior, so safe, risk-free behavior, conservative behavior is punished. Whereas invest in the very long term, like let's say a company like Uber, which makes no money, mm-hmm. which has no prospect of making money, which is all hope value. It's all, I swear to Jesus, we're going to change the world value, right? That gets financed eminently. Now, that is what has been the case for the last 10 years. The question is, if the cycle turns, what you will get is all those investments that were hope value. And obviously, property is about that too. Because yeah. on the one hand, there's a little stream of income called rent. But most property investment is based on capital appreciation in the future. Yeah. You buy this now for a million quid, it's worth two million in the future. Right. right? So it's wealth accumulation as opposed to income. It's a wealth accumulation as opposed to income, which is all based on low interest rates, which always then values tomorrow over today. Yeah. So therefore, really good companies that generate lots and lots and lots of profits today, okay, which are called value companies, they are kind of discarded. People don't look at them. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food. Food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Whereas loads and loads of money goes in to your, your big, big, for example, tech companies that don't make any yeah. money, that sort of idea. So my thing is that property is part of the Uber playlist, okay? It's all about value tomorrow, growth tomorrow, jackpot tomorrow. If the global cycle turns, what you will see is a massive whiplash effect that money will flood out of hope value and go back into the short end where people have income. Right. And this For safety. For safety, right? Yeah. So then you've got to think is, we're now at the end of a 10-year economic cycle. How is it going to end? That's the big question. And so what will make this cycle change? Again, good question, my friend. Thank you very uh, much. I've been working on this. I know. It's fueled by the cocktails, by but the way. But first, first, I want to do, what I want to do is, just before I, I answer that, I want to go back to Finn, because to get a sense of what has been happening is that, in 2008, the world nearly imploded based on having too much debt and too much credit. The question is now what has happened? And what I think we'll find is those debt figures, which were a problem before, have got even worse in the last. Okay. Yeah. Finn, do you have those figures for us? Yeah, sure. So again, this is from the IMF, uh, a publication they released at the start of the year. So global debt has reached an all-time high of $184 trillion in nominal terms which is the equivalent of 225% of world GDP in 2017. Jesus Christ. I can't even get my head around a figure like that. But Sorry, go ahead. No, yeah, totally. Unfathomable numbers, really. Um, but you compare that, we'll say, to the previous peak, which, as David says, 2009. So the world is now more than 11 percentage points of GDP deeper in debt than it was 10 years ago, say. And just to break that down further, so on average, the world's debt it now exceeds $86,000 per capita, which is more than two and a half times the average income per capita. So that's bringing it right down to the individual level there and putting it in perspective. So take... Um, and you want, you want one, one last figure? Go one, for it. The private, the private sector's debt has, has tripled since 1950. And that's, that's been one of the main driving forces behind this like this overarching trend of increasing debt over the past half century or so. So what you see, John, taking those figures from Finn, right, is that since 1950, debts have been rising, but since 2008, debts have been rising incredibly quickly. Mm. So basically, all the prosperity that the world has generated in the last 10 years is not earned prosperity, it's rented because it's based on massive borrowing. And the second part of this is the only thing the major takeaway that we have from Ireland from our history of the last 15 years is that debt makes you very fragile. It makes you very, very delicate and it makes you ill-prepared to deal with financial shocks. Yeah. And then the question is, 
given that we know the world is full of debt, given that we know property prices are moving in sync because of this debt, if the cycle were to change or if it comes to an end, what's the likely outcome? And then it's interesting to deploy economic history. So great economic cycles end in two ways, either in inflation are in deflation. They don't end any other way. Explain that to me. Then. So exactly. So what has happened, like take for example the United States. Inflation happens when unemployment falls to very, very low levels. Mm-hmm. There's no more excess capacity in the market. There's no more people who want to get a job without a job. So therefore employers have to compete and they have to offer higher wages. So they start to offer higher wages, okay? At the same time, the higher asset prices, the property prices drive up rents. So people, workers say, well, hold on a second. My rent is going through the roof. I need more wages just to cover my rent. So within the seeds of the boom are the seeds of its own destruction. So the rent pushes up. So people say, well, fuck this. I need more wages. At the same time, six or eight, let's say four years ago, the employer could say, well, if you want more wages, I don't care because there's no, there's another 3 million people on the dole here. I can go and get them and offer lower wages. But those people on the dole have disappeared because they have now have jobs as unemployment falls. So at the end of the cycle, what you see is these two pressures for increased costs, in this case yeah. rents, and increased wages, which drive up inflation. Then the central banks see inflation coming through. They say, hold on a second, we're not going to have any of that stuff. So they raise interest rates, in some cases quite dramatically, to bring inflation back down. And higher interest rates destroy the indebted. Yeah. Okay? The best way to look at this, this is the playlist of the 1970s. This happened, so between the 1950s and the 1970s, you have very low levels of inflation. Then in the 1970s, you've got the Yom Kippur War. The Arabs react to the West supporting the Israelis by saying, screw you, you support our enemies, we're going to penalize you by jacking up the price of oil. They jack up the price of oil. What happens in the price of oil in the West is that we're so oil dependent that oil pushes up all other prices because everybody needs oil. Two things happen then. The West goes into a downturn, but it goes into a downturn with inflation, which is called stagflation. Then in the United States, the head of the central bank says to Ronald Reagan when he got in, he said, much as I like you, Ronnie, we're going to have to bear down on this inflation, and they raised interest rates to 20%. People forget this. Wow. That American interest rates in the early 1980s were 20%. This, of course, crushed inflation. Yeah. It also crashed all those companies that had massive debts because they couldn't pay. Of course, yeah, yeah. So the inflationary outcome is the one we saw in the 70s and early 80s, which culminates in very, very high interest rates, which try to crush the inflation, which tend to destroy the economy. The other end game is the one we just about avoided in 2008, but we didn't avoid in the 1930s, which is the deflationary outcome. Okay. And that means that there's so much debt in the system that the system's entirely exposed to a potential shock coming from somewhere. And then people panic, and once people panic, you see this extraordinary situation whereby people who used to finance each other say, hold on a second, I'm not going to finance you. The economy becomes contracting. People who used to say, you know what, you don't have to pay me that money back for 10 years, mm. say, you know what, I want that money back tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, so you yeah. get this, what's called a deflationary contraction. And the interesting thing is all great cycles in economic history either end in the inflationary cycle or the deflationary cycle. And what happens to deflation is that if you are a company with lots of debt and you can service that debt 
because you're selling your goods for, let's say, 100 quid. Mm. If in deflation you have to sell your goods for 80 quid, the price of your goods falls, therefore your revenue falls, mm. but the debt you already incurred in the past stays the same. So you get destroyed by the fact that your revenues are falling, but your debt service Got is it. still yeah. the same. That's the deflationary outcome. And this is the way history tells us these big cycles end. And the question then, John, I have is, are we at the end of one of these big cycles? And if we are, what determines which way we go, inflationary or deflationary? That's, again, one thing that you'd want to... At the moment in the United States, it looks more like inflation. Okay. So American... Uh, because American unemployment has fallen to very low levels. American wages are beginning to rise. American rents are very, very high, particularly in urban areas. And you can see how the end game is going to happen in America. Also a trade war. Yeah. In the past, the Americans were importing, this sounds weird, importing cheap goods. So they're actually importing something that makes inflation less. Yeah. Because the goods came in from China yeah. and they were yeah. cheap. Now that they've imposed tariffs on Chinese goods, and now that they want to actually keep the Chinese out, the long-term implication of that is Americans are going to have to pay more for the same shit. So would it not make sense? And that will drive up inflationary pressures at the end of the cycle. The Federal Reserve, which is already nervous because Trump is suggesting that the Federal Reserve is the problem, will react as all institutions under threat do, being slightly more mature than they have to. And maybe this is the end game for America. In China, the end game is much more likely to be the deflationary impact because China is the country that has actually taken on more debt than anyone else in the last 10 years. And that debt is locally sourced in China, which is entirely based on China continuing to export to the rest of the world. If the trade war sets off a chain of events, which means China exports less, then suddenly... Is this why Trump has been so bullish with the Chinese? This is one of the reasons why Trump has been so bullish. The other reason is I get the impression he doesn't understand tariffs, right? Which is kind of a bit of a problem. Because So a tariff, you know, Trump says, yeah, we're going to put tariffs on them. China are going to pay for it. China, China. It's just like Mexico is paying for the Yeah, not a Mexican, like, you know. But the problem with tariffs is Trump doesn't seem to understand that you pay the fucking tariff. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's not like the Chinese dudes pay it. So the Chinese dudes still export the same stuff to America, but then the American consumer pays 20% more. Yeah. Now, given... The American how, farmers have been absolutely hammered. All that. So, you know, I think it's really important... It's a tax on the consumer. It's That's Finn always more succinct. <laughs> Thanks, Finn. <laughs> that tariffs are a tax on the consumer. Yeah. So therefore, in the United States it seems much more likely that the end game is this inflationary end game. Can I just ask a question on that? Yep. Uh, If that is the case, and you said part of the issue is that unemployment is at at an all-time low, so why not open the border and and let some more Mexicans in? Well, that's the thing. But Well, well, I mean, the thing is, so the factor to appreciate is that what we're talking about here is capacity. America is now straining at the extremes of its capacity, both in terms of its population, in terms of its workforce, and in terms of its investment structure. The way in which you expand capacity, as you said, is you expand the supply side of the economy, Mm. which is you expand supply. And one of those, of course, is you expand the labor force. But Trump clearly doesn't want to do that. So think about the inflationary end game as a problem of too much capacity. It's like a car 
which has been revved up in first gear and the engine just overheats. Yeah. Okay. And the way in which you actually get that car to chill out is you put it into fifth gear, you give it more capacity and then it cruises. Right. Yeah. So that's the American side. The Chinese side is much more, it seems to me, like Ireland was, as a very small example, mm-hmm. in 2007, that you have all this money, you have all this debt, it's all predicated on only blue skies. Yeah. No clouds, only blue skies. Soft landing, it's all going to be kosher. Don't be worried about anything. You get side blinds, you get hit by something, and the entire debt edifice crumbles. And people who are looking at China, much more educated in China than I am, say that that is the risk. But to come back to the big point, which is that long-term, decade-long, great economic cycles end. And when something... The way people say it's not sustainable, Mm. well, actually, that's only a nice way of saying it's going to end. Mm. And when people say it's not sustainable, it's going to end. And the question is, for us in this little remote part of the globe, if it does end in either way, What's the upshot for the one factor? And again, it's quite interesting. Over the last 20 years, the role of credit and property in recessions has become much, much greater than was the case in the past. Isn't that fair to say, Finn? Yeah, I mean, the data is pretty clear. It's two thirds of financial crises in recent decades were preceded by this boom bust cycle in housing. So So there you have it. And then the question is uh, for the Irish side of things is there anything special yeah going on here that explains why irish property prices have gone up quite dramatically on the demand side and again finn can you give me the factors that might be unique to ireland yeah sure thing i mean this is this is more like contrasting ireland's current housing stock to ireland's likely housing needs over the next let's say 50 years so you can break it down into four main factors let's say so First off is natural population increases. That's just, you take your birth rate minus your death rate. Ireland has by far the fastest natural population growth amongst Western European countries. So that's one That's one source of domestic population, and that equals demand. Then another is net migration. So net migration to, be, to Ireland has been positive since around 2015. And another point on this, which leads me to the next one, is migrant households are typically larger than are typically smaller rather than domestic Irish households. And another f- point for demand is changing household size. So Ireland has the largest average household size in Western Europe at 2.7 people per household. But this has been falling steadily over the past five decades. So as both Irish household sizes decrease and urbanization rates converge towards the European average, you're going to see a lot more demand for smaller houses, particularly apartments, in Ireland over the next, let's say, 50 years. And you need to contrast that to Ireland's existing housing stock of largely detached and semi-detached three to four bed houses. What is the upshot of all this? Well, not to sound like the Delphic yeah. oracle saying, well, it might be on the one hand and the other hand, you know, and poor old Apollo is left there saying, tell us what the hell's going yeah. on. And <laughs> Zeus is in the background getting freaked out because he <laughs> got your one up the pole and all that stuff, right? Okay, so not to be like this, look at it this way. Although it would be wrong to say, bring it on, global slowdown. The first thing we've got to appreciate is, one, we are not going to determine whether the credit markets globally go up or down, okay? Because we're too small. Yeah. Two, these credit cycles, great credit cycles, end in two ways. One is inflation, one is deflation. Three, 
the logical upshot of either of those is that investors bail out of long-term assets, one of which is speculative property assets, and go back in to assets that generate much more income. This means global property prices begin to fall from their very, very high peaks now. Four, in Ireland, should we be petrified of this in the way we were petrified of a property slump last time around? Not really, because five, Irish balance sheets aren't leveraged up as significantly, i.e. people haven't borrowed two or three houses in order to, you know, what we did the last time was we bought and sold houses to each other and thought we were getting rich. We've learned something from it. Well, not much, but something, right? Yeah. So not that we welcome. So six, and this is the core of the issue. In Ireland, the key to housing and property is supply management. And that comes back to land management. And this comes back to moving away from a system that rewards the hoarding of land. And the interesting thing is, the most important, I think, I think now for political leadership is to understand the world you live in. And if we had political leadership that understood the world we live in and could see all these big cycles or at least could appreciate it, there is a way with active land management right now that Ireland can ride this global wave without this incredibly detrimental crash that happened 10 years ago. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, before we let you go, I want to give you a sneak preview of some premium content which you can access via Patreon. Nobody can argue, John, that rural Ireland needs broadband. Nobody can argue with that. And nobody can argue the government trying to be opportunistic ahead of an election saying, I'm going to be the saviour of rural Ireland. That's what they do. And I also can't argue with the American investment companies trying to get the best deal for itself. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's the way it goes. But what I do find weird, and this is the economist in me, is that the economist has to ask three questions. One is, is, how much will it cost? Is there any competition in the bid? And who's going to own it at the end? So you take, for example, all our motorways we built in the last 10 years, which was quite impressive building, were done in the PPP. Yeah. And, of course, in all PPPs, there's three or four bidders, so you get the best bid. This one's different because, number one, there's only one bidder. Why is that? If you enjoyed that, you can hear the full episode and much more by joining us on Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. See ya. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.